Aloha, and welcome to the Daddy Unscripted Podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the podcast host, the creator of Daddy Unscripted, and I'm welcoming you in the language of Hawaiian, if you didn't know that already, which I think a lot of you did. But there may be some of you that don't know that you say welcome by saying aloha. I'm not sure who those people are, but I'm still trying to help you guys with your foreign language knowledge of saying hello and goodbye to people. So you're welcome for that. I'm glad you guys are here for this episode with myself and Griffin House. Gosh, this is a good one. I just got done actually recording this, so I'm recording the intro afterwards. So I'm a little ahead of you guys. I've kind of got the spoilers that I'm not going to give you all of them. You're going to have to listen to the episode. But this was such a fun, cool conversation. How much backstory am I going to give you on this? I got into contact with Griffin's management company who reached out to me and thought that Griffin would be a great guest. And guess what? They were right. Griffin is awesome. He was awesome. Griffin, I I, I have to be honest, I had not heard of him, which is odd because I do enjoy some people that are kind of I hate even saying this like it grates on me a little bit, but that are in that genre of his style of music. But immediately, as soon as they contacted me, I went right on Spotify, like, what do you do? And looked him up and started looking him up on Wikipedia to learn a little bit more about him and all of that stuff. And immediate fan, like right away. Love his music, love his lyrics and his songwriting style. Just right up one of my alleys, which I have a few different musical alleys, but he is absolutely knocks down the pin. Ooh, I made it into a bowling alley. Look at how I did that. He definitely, oh, Griffin, you get a strike with me, lad. I don't know what just happened, but as you will see in this episode, Griffin definitely understands the different personas. <laughs> so that one was for you, special Griffin. You're welcome. Anyway, there's a lot going on with Griffin right now. We recorded this on June 26th on Wednesday, June 28th, that Friday. Well, gosh, I'm talking in the post pre I'm in inception right now. I've finally done it or the matrix. I'm not sure, but the little modem modem. No hodum. Hodor, I don't know. The thing is spinning and it won't stop spinning because I'm going to tell you that his album is now out already, even though it isn't while I'm saying these words. So I'm in a weird place, but it's called Rising Star. Check it out. Griffin House, Rising Star. He also has a movie coming out called Rising Star at some point in the future, which I'm very excited about. Can't wait to see. Looks like just one of those very real documentaries about an artist and I I just cannot wait to see it and immediately when I saw that trailer when I heard his music I was writing back his management company and saying yes please make this happen because I can't wait to talk with this guy so we could have talked a lot longer absolutely could have talked a lot longer I feel like there is so much that will be covered in that movie and other stories that we didn't get into but we did get to talk a lot and I can't wait for you guys to take this whole episode in. First, I will tell you that the Daddy Unscripted podcast is very proud to be part of the Osiris Podcast Network, the network that is about music and culture podcasts and is for all of you music fans out there like 
Griffin House. So I'm going to give another podcast in the network an opportunity to tell you a little bit about their podcast right now. Osiris. Southern Songs and Stories is a documentary series on the artists, music, and culture of the South with interviews, songs, a good bit of history, and insights into how all of it fits together. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, inviting you to come explore the music of the South and the artists who make it on Southern Songs and Stories. Okay, so make sure you check that podcast out. Just jot a little note down. I don't want you to run away from this episode with Griffin right now. Come back to that other one, and then you can come back and listen to more episodes of Daddy Unscripted and be a big Osiris family with us. It'll be really fun. I'm going to jump you right into this conversation. We basically hit the ground running. So let's get right to this episode. Without any further ado, my full conversation with Griffin House. just saw my dad on Father's Day. I spent Father's Day with, with him and I've been a little distant from my dad for a while, but I feel like we're kind of, we're getting closer and I look forward to you seeing the film that we made because there's a huge dad-son moment in the film. Oh, cool. And I start telling a story about how my dad's dad um, Jack House, who I called Poppy, he had this tire shop, and my dad went to go work for him the day after he graduated from college, and he's been there ever since, huh. and working there every day. And um, I was telling a story on stage about how he wouldn't let me work in the tire shop, even though I wanted to as a kid. He just wouldn't let me come down there, and I used to get mad about it. And I think he, I think he was trying. Looking back now, he's trying to keep our relationship good because I remember him coming back from work upset from fighting with his dad there and, mm-hmm. and his dad, uh, my grandpa passed away just a couple of years ago, two or three years oh. ago. And, um, so my dad, uh, my dad's been down there. We featured his shop and him on the movie and my parents got divorced when I was like 22. So I, I played this song that I wrote during the movie. I, I wrote the song when I was right after they got divorced and then I played it during the movie. And there's a huge scene of me going to my dad's tire, tire shop in the movie and kind of, talking about that whole story and I was nervous for my dad to see it. And he came down here about a month ago and I played the movie for him and I, I didn't know what he, what he was going to think about this tire shop scene. I didn't know if his feelings were going to be hurt or it was just going to be awkward. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what to say to him. And I started to play the movie and when it got to the tire shop scene, like an hour in, into the movie, I just reached over and held his hand during the scene and we both started crying and um my my daughter started crying then she's seven and oh. she ran upstairs and she goes mommy the most beautiful thing just happened papa brian and daddy are on the couch crying and then i started crying <laughs> and they're holding hands uh. and it was just like a really great moment of communication because my dad and i don't communicate that well with words and i didn't know what to say to him but it just showed me that you don't have to really use words to communicate sometimes mm-hmm that meant a lot to me. And I think uh, my dad opened up a little over Father's Day about how he feels about the family dynamic at home. And it's, it's interesting just with my sister and, and like the family back in Springfield where he's from, where they live yeah. now. But 
he sent me the best Father's Day card. I got it when I came home, and um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read it to you. It's just a, it's you know, a Hallmark card or something. It really hit home because it, it just hit me right where I was, and I wasn't expecting it. And uh, he said, um, "Success is not about what car you drive, how much you make, or who you know. Success is about what you do with the gifts you have, how you take care of the people you love, and who you are inside." And then it says inside, it says, and son, you are every definition of the word success. Happy Father's Day. And it just meant so much to me because it kind of like kind of called me out a little bit in the first part of the, the card because and, and not because I don't give a shit about what. Sorry, I don't can't say that. it's OK. You can do it. <laughs> I, I don't care about what car I drive. Obviously, I drive a Honda minivan and shuffle my awesome. Around, but it's <laughs> like it spoke a lot to just being in the music business and getting caught up in the competitive nature of um, mm-hmm. the status of that in Nashville and, you know, kind of who, you know, here and, and how, how revered you are. And maybe it's not about how much you make, but I guess how well known you are in certain ways. And, you know, maybe even how many Instagram followers you have or something mm-hmm. like that. Just to get a reminder from my father that it's about who you are on the inside, which is like, obviously I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know, like, but we forget, we get caught up in the daily grind of just trying to be a success in the world and forget that it's really just about who we are as people. And it, just to have that reminder from my father was really special on Father's Day. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That number thing, like, I mean, it's funny how widespread that is because, yeah, you talk about it in the music industry and whatever, I guess any entertainment industry and you're constantly looking at numbers and what are our downloads and how many yeah. people went to see this or whatever. And I think potentially singer songwriters or I guess musicians as a whole, like you have a different kind of inner niche within that because of the many people that you, I think you guys hear from now and again that you're changing their life with your words with like your words i think that that's different that for like an actor you know or something like that because it's somebody else that they're portraying or somebody else who wrote these things but like for you guys when people really are you're helping them through their life like that handful even if it's 12 people that you have reached in your career, like that's 12 people's lives that you potentially changed with what you did. And that's huge. I mean, how is that's priceless? Yeah, it really is. It's important to remember that and um, not take that for granted. Cause I think that the world makes you feel like in my profession, you're tempted to feel like you're not a success unless um, you have a stadium full of people. And, and mm-hmm. when you think of it that way. It's, it's hard to, remember that it really is more about the 12 people's lives who you made a significant impact on and that they're there because they really, it really means something to them and not because it's just a cool thing to do on a Saturday night, you know? Yeah. And, and that's like the, I guess the artist struggle because you've also got to make a life yeah, for yourself yeah, and your family. That's it. It's, um, that, that balance is, is tough and, I, there's part of me that just wishes I could find out how to just be really content with the fact that I've been doing music for 15 years and I have 12 or 13 albums and 
I go and get to play for fairly good crowds most nights. But because of that mentality, I think that's ingrained in you early on, surrounded by the music business. I'm I'm always afraid that if I just let myself kind of sit back and enjoy, that it will invite complacency and that the ship will do nothing but slowly sink after that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It's like, I don't even know if that's true. Like there's, it could be that if I really learn to embrace and enjoy right where I am right now, that it might just all get better suddenly because my, my internal like light has come on a little bit or I've become wiser or something. Yeah. <laughs> but it feels the opposite. It just, it's, it's often a really tough thing to deal with mentally. Yeah. And like the, the basis of like the recording album tour and that in between of tour to next recording or whatever mm-hmm. that space in there. I mean, what is that like? I mean, is it, does it feel like you really have to kind of drive through to the next sequence or. Um, the, that's the sequence for a lot of people. Mine is a little bit different in that I would make a record and I'll pretty much tour the whole year. And because I'm a dad and um, have, a wife and two kids at home, the way that I manage that is I try to not ever be gone for more than two weeks at a time. And oftentimes I'm only gone for about five days at a time. So I'm like in and out of town constantly. And Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a constant like, okay, I'm on the road and now I get in this groove and then I come home and I try to adjust to being home and I'm really uncomfortable at the re-entry for like two or three days and then I start to get comfortable and then it's time to go again. So it's like mm-hmm. this really jolting feeling of I want nothing but to have like a whole year off and yet when I'm home, I start to like lose my mind because I'm not touring. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's really weird. The life of a creative and having to like keep it going for your sanity and then everything else that builds into and off of that like i i always talk my wife kind of makes fun of me because i always have this thing about my cups and how you have to have like your cups filled and if you have nothing to give other people out of your cups then everybody loses and so you have to do your things to fill your cups so you can give other people stuff from them and that's yeah for a creative that can be so uh, such a big struggle. Well, Cup of Fulfillment is a song on my new album, so maybe that will be good for you. <laughs> Perfect lead in. Perfect lead in tonight. <laughs> um, Where can I find this cup with only? Show me my master, show me the sea. For I have a need to fill up this hole, to drink from this cup and quench me my soul.
in the dark It's the fire in our hearts And even when our work is done Long may your love live on Yeah, I was the, the one thought I was having while you're saying that is that I think I'm a little bit like the soldier who comes home and misses the war kind of feeling mm-hmm. like dreams of being home all the time. And then he gets back in the mundane parts of life that aren't so fast paced all the time. I find to be harder to deal with than the really intense, challenging. <laughs> yeah. Going to battle. So. Well, let's, let's go all the way back. I know I said like, this is the first question I ask. And I meant that like, as in a, I don't want to make sure I don't stick my foot in my mouth during our recording, but we're just basically going. So let's go back and like, tell us about your dad and maybe even a little bit, you said Poppy. Yeah, Poppy. It starts with, with the tire shop, custom tire. And we lived right across from my grandpa uh, as a kid growing up um, on East high street in Springfield, Ohio. And for the first six years of my life, that's where we were. And I just saw my dad go to work and, go work at the tire shop and they were both big golfers. They both loved to golf. So mm. um, I think my grandpa was excited about getting my dad working for the tire shop because it meant that he could sort of retire earlier and go play more golf, <laughs> what he did. And, and my dad spent most of his free time golfing after he got done. It's a, it's a weird juxtaposition that we have because it's like, you can't imagine a more blue collar place than this, this tire shop where I'm from and my, my, fathers are from and then we lived in this town where it was such that you didn't have to be rich to to belong to like the local golf course and swimming pool called springfield country club you could basically be have a middle class income and live a really sweet life and if you wanted to you know play golf and go swimming so that was something that i spent my summers doing a lot and it was passed down from me from from my dad and his dad and i kind of became I became a pet competitive golfer mm. in my life as a result of being raised by, by those guys. So golf has always been a, a big part of where I'm from. And I, I still, it's still in my life a lot, but I, I turned down a golf scholarship to go to Miami um, instead of take the scholarship at OU. So I, I've come from the long line of that. And um, my other grandfather was sort of like a father to me though. I, I talked, about him a lot at my shows i talked to about him at almost every show i play he was my mom's dad and his name was george griffin and he was a medic in world war ii and he served Mm. in the 78th lightning division and that time in the battle of the bulge and in the hurtkin forest and the remagen bridge and he came home and after fighting in the war and um had the bronze star for bravery and had a lot of stories to tell he let me interview him for a high school project one time and he never really talked about the war much but he did let me interview him that one time and I he joked around a lot when we were kids and I always tell the story at my shows that he used to tell us that he shot Adolf Hitler's mustache off and then he had it in his back pocket so I was a kid I I thought my grandfather had Hitler's little mustache in his wallet which I I tell at every show and I might as well tell here at Daddy and yeah so um just and his name was George Griffin so I got my first name from his his name, and my mom gave me her maiden name as a first name, and then House is my my dad's last name. So that's 
how I came to be. That's a good, you have a solid name. Your parents did well. (laughs) Thank you. Um, so is, was your dad an only child or? No, he's from a pretty big family. He had, um, an older brother, Bart and an older sister, Jill, and then a younger brother, Eric and a younger sister, Lisa. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's, uh, they had a couple, at least a few miscarriages in that family too. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, they, they big family and my mom's, my mom's side is, uh, has four girls on that side. Wow. So did any of the other family members do have anything to do with tires and or no. golf? No, that's the crazy thing is that huh. neither of my dad's brothers play. Um, and neither one of them spent any time at the tire shop. So it's interesting. Wow. He funneled it all into your dad. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because my dad's dad was an athlete and he had a scholarship at IU for football and track. He wasn't a big guy. He was like five seven or five eight, but he was really fast. And uh, he had a he had the record at the high school, I think, for the hundred yard dash for like ages. And I think he still does because when it changed over to meters, it, he still had it for yards. Hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so nobody will ever beat it. Nobody will ever beat it. <laughs> um, it's pretty crazy. But he he blew out his knee in, in an all star game in Indiana, and I think he was he was on a relay team in college. The legend goes they set like the unofficial world record one day at practice, and so I think he was thinking that he would do a lot with his athleticism and maybe even you know go compete in the four by four relay or something. And but as it, fate turned out, he blew out his knee, got sent home, and got my grandmother pregnant and started working at the tire shop. So I've had like this ongoing mythology of like sort of these men in my family being gifted with these um, pretty significant talents in some way and then maybe having life work on them and, and then not be able to realize their dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I maybe integrated that myth- mythology into my being so hardcore that I felt like I had to do something great with my life in order to make up for them not getting their dreams met. and. Mm. Um, I kind of always thought that would be golf, but then it turned out that it seemed like it was going to be more music. And when I mm-hmm. moved to Nashville and started having somewhat big things happening, like getting on a record label and then ending up on the CBS Sunday morning show and going out and opening for people like John Mellencamp and Bruce Springsteen's wife and the Cranberries and meeting Bruce Springsteen and all this stuff happening. I'm like, Oh, I'm fulfilling my destiny. I'm going to actually do what I'm supposed to do and live out this mythology that my, my dad and his dad didn't get to do. Um, and then somehow kind of hitting a little bit of a wall in terms of, Hey, I'm making a living, but this isn't like the level of greatness I was anticipating when I set out to really achieve this big dream. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we made a movie about about that, basically. It's called Rising Star, and it's just kind of about uh, the struggles of trying to deal with that that reality and walk that line in the music business of, um, of just what's it mean to be famous? Does it even matter? It's a stupid thing to think about when you consider that there are 7 billion people in the world, and even if a million know who you are, then there's 6,999,000 that don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's just silly. But I think because maybe I'm starting to understand that maybe because I grew up with that idea that I had to sort of like make it for everyone. I put a lot of pressure on myself as like the hero child to go out and really 
be something significant, you know. And do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a sister, Gretchen, who's five years younger than me, and she lives in Springfield, Ohio, like down the street from my dad. Wow. Yeah. And did she take on any of the leanings of... No. So so you and your dad basically are... Well, I mean, even though you may not be doing the tire shop, Griffin, but you uh, do play golf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's. There's definitely been some strong things from my lineage passed down that I that I recognize some strong themes for sure. And I'm just kind of now seeing that. You know, you spend all this time thinking I'm nothing like my dad. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. To the tire shop, and I play music for a living, and like I don't care about making money or career things or trivial stuff like that. I just want to be like a hippie dreamer out here in the middle of nowhere. And, and I'm carving my own path. And then you're like, Oh shit, I really am a lot like my dad <laughs> and my grandpa put together and my, and my mom's dad too. But I, I just, I hope I can take all the good things about them and just refine it a little bit and maybe do, do a little less with um, some of the stuff that wasn't all that great sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And did, were you musically inclined when you were a kid or did no. that come much later? No, I wasn't at all. I, I, I got interested in theater because my high school had this amazing theater department, um, which I went to high school with John Legend and he was John huh. Stevens then and he sang in the, one of the plays Fiddler on the Roof and this other guy had the lead named Alex Beekman. And I, I was like, man, I want to be on stage singing. Those guys look like they're having a really fun time. And at that point, I'd watched Rattle and Hum, too. Awesome. A musical and, uh, journey. Yeah. So I wanted to be like Bono, and I thought theater was a good way to go do it, do the musical journey that Adam Clayton. <laughs> Who says that? It's uh, Adam Clayton, I think. Uh, uh, and they just said, keep <laughs> saying it. Oh, yeah. It's Larry Mullen. It's a musical journey. <laughs> so I tried out for a play. The one-act plays were like these little plays that happened on on stage they would set the seats up on the actual stage and do these one act plays and i had a big role in that and then i tried out for the musical and they gave me a singing part and i couldn't sing so i had to practice with this tape and i was the bad guy in oklahoma judd fry and awesome i learned how to do it myself and like i sang in front of people for the first time one day and they were like holy crap griffin can sing we didn't know that and i and all of a sudden it was like whoa this hidden talent and i felt like for one minute I'd finally tapped into like this power that I'd been looking for my whole life. And uh, it, it was pretty intoxicating. I was like, Whoa, if I could sing, then I could like do anything. I could go be in a band. I could go sing on Broadway in New York. It's like my dreamer um, mm -hmm. just went crazy. And I just followed that a long way and, and meandered, you know, ended up not playing golf and went to Miami and joined a band there and sang in the band. And, the band couldn't really get a CD done. So I went off and did my own little record and started playing in college. And one thing just led to another and, and it eventually just snowballed into me doing it more and more. And then eventually for a living. That's awesome. So did you start there? Like, were you still in Miami when you kind of started your solo stuff? Yeah, I was in Miami and I had gave the band an ultimatum one summer because we were driving like an hour every week like several times a week to go practice back in Oxford where we went to school and we were all living in Cincinnati, but we had this church that let us use the 
this sanctuary for band practice. And we would drive all the way up there. We would practice several times a week, but we weren't really playing very many gigs, like just a, one or two a month, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, guys, if we don't have a CD done by the end of the summer, like I got to get out of here. We need to get serious and like make a recording and do this for real. Cause I really wanted to do it. I was passionate about it. And we didn't get a CD done by the end of the summer. And I called their bluff and I left and I made my own CD. And um, <laughs> one of the guys in the band, I made the CD on the 12 track recorder of one of the guys in the band. And awesome. I was dependent on him to mix it for me. So I had to like bug the living crap out of him during the fall semester and say, send me the, the record. Like I need you to mix my record and send it to me. And <laughs> I was just calling him and calling him and he wouldn't do it. He was just like dragging his feet. And I finally got him to send it to me and I pressed up a bunch of copies at, at Miami and I went to the radio station and got all these jewel cases they were going to throw out and i cleaned them all up and put my own artwork in them and my own burn cds and i sold them in class for ten dollars a piece which is funny because now music is um essentially free most places so the only commodity that has gone steadily down in value since (laughs) since then and i don't know that's a whole nother talking point but that's for a different music business podcast (laughs) probably (laughs) yeah i've uh have been thinking about that quite a bit because I will still buy music and I, I don't know. I just like having it and not having, I don't, I, I, I stream when I'm at work or whatever, but I like being able to access it whenever, wherever mm-hmm. I, I like buying music and owning it. And I also, especially with people who are not you uh, too or somebody because they've gotten enough of my money. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I like doing that and feeling like, Hey, I'm, I'm putting something in these people's coffers and yeah. especially people that I'm maybe not able to see live. So I'm not, I know they're getting no chunk of that from me or whatever, but yeah. um, I also always joke around that when the internet goes down for a month, a worldwide i will still be able to listen to music that's right that's so true <laughs> <laughs> so you said your father passed away when you were 17 yeah and do you mind if i asked how, how that happened or what? no not at all he it was my senior year of high school and he in january this is 1990 he started having some weird things that he would call episodes mm-hmm. and Um, I got to witness a few of them and he basically couldn't do anything. He could think and he could talk, but he couldn't move or do anything. And I remember specifically this one time he was in his car and I ran out to tell him that he needed to get something else. My mom had told me and he was just sitting there and the car was running and he was just looking straight ahead and he was listening and he told me, I'm just having one of my episodes right now Uh. in February, I think of that year. They thought that he had, and I can't even remember, um, some kind of something in his brain and they detected these spots and I can't remember what they had said that they thought it was in June. I believe they said that it was cancer. He had something called astrocytoma, which is like a, an extremely aggressive tumor and it was, um, multiplying and it was inoperable and, he didn't want to do chemo and all of that. So he did like a, 
uh, homeopathic kind of thing that Ronald Reagan had done that was kind of this cutting edge. I mean, if you can call homeopathy cutting edge, but it had been, it was legal in Germany and it wasn't legal here by the USDA or the FDA. And so he lived on the border of Mexico and California in like this hotel. And there was this place in Mexico that was doing it. And he lived in this place and took a shuttle across every day and did this thing for like a month or two months. And so anyways, that was the summer and in November he died. So it was like extremely rapid. Um, so it was crazy. I mean, he was like, we were really close. He was my best friend and I'm the youngest of eight. And it was just, it was tough because it was, you know, it was at that time of my life, you know, when you shouldn't be kind of dealing with that. And I, I did not deal with it at all very well. I was just too young and stupid and didn't really get it. So, man, that's like right at the time when you can get really close with your dad. I think when you start to get Mm -hmm. 17, you kind of, I remember that that part, at least with my father being feeling really close to him at that stage in my life. Yeah, it's hard, man. How how old would you say he was? He was just about to be 61. Yeah. Well, that's uh, my poppy was born in 29. Oh, really? Yeah. And actually, my mom, who was born in 31, uh, was born out there in Ohio. She I, I know that your um, poppy's family, like when he was a kid was going through or his parents were going through all of that stuff with the crash and yeah. dealing with that. I've heard, I don't know if you got to hear many of those stories either from him or anybody, but it's crazy thinking about people dealing with a family during that time. Yeah, definitely. My, my grandmother, um, my mom's side talked about it more like just living through the depression. And cause I guess my George was born in 20. So you know, he, he was like 10 when mm-hmm. stuff really started to hit and, uh, yeah, he talked about it a lot and it, I think it shaped my mentality of appreciating what can happen even in a country like America and just it shaped my, my mentality of, I don't know, appreciating what that generation did for us and yeah. them fighting in, in the war and, and just going through something like the depression. And sometimes today in modern society, I just feel like a lot of those values that I was raised with and were are ingrained in me and the understanding of the world is, uh, doesn't seem present right now. And mm-hmm. it kind of concerns me sometimes because I feel like we're, I don't want to, I hope that we always progress and evolve and continue to to grow, but I think it's important to hold on to some of those traditions and values and wisdom from the past for sure. Yeah. It's noisy right now, you know? Yeah, it is. It's, it's hard to like look down and remember or see the roots of some things just because there is so much going on. And so much of that feels like perpetuated in a way that doesn't need to be so noisy. I don't know. Okay. So we'll meander back to you are. I moved to Nashville. Um, I made some recordings here with some friends that ended up getting some attention of some, some labels, some major labels. Um, one of those friends is Ian Fitchuk, who was one of the first people I met here and he just won 
I think four Grammys this year for the wow. Musgraves record that he oh, yeah. produced. So it's just so funny. I mean, it's so surreal to um, watch my friends that I, you know, are the first people that I met that were so pivotal in my, my own little, little story of moving to Nashville and starting music and then watching them do that. And, uh, like achieve music's highest awards on national television while I'm sitting yeah. on the couch with my kids is like pretty amazing. I'm sure. Yeah. And the move to Nashville, was it, was it driven by what your kind of intent was musically or no, something it, it, else? It was driven because my friend from college, uh, Rusty was living here and I think at the time he may have even had a job with creative artist agency and he, he told me all about the music happening in Nashville and that it was more than just country music. And then our other friend Donnie moved down here and he was like, Hey Griff, let's just move down to Nashville with Rusty. And I, I thought, okay, I'm Philadelphia did not pan out. I need somewhere to go. I like these guys. I trust these guys. I feel safe around them and they're fun and there might be a music connection down there. Who knows? But Mm -hmm. it wasn't like my first choice of destination. It just happened that I didn't really have any better option. And I knew I had, a place to go so i just thought i'm gonna go around some guys that i have a good relationship with and maybe there'll be enough of a music thing going on down there where i, I can do my music and maybe make some connections and and it turned out to be kind of right because i i met some people here in town and one of the my fellow artists uh friends in nashville dave barnes that i used to tour around with had a career now of his own writing songs he had a hit song with blake shelton not long ago and that mm. just randomly happened and he was, we were all like in our early twenties and he had taken a demo that I'd made up to New York city as he was being looked at by a major label. And they asked him if he knew of anything good or any good music happening in Nashville. And he pulled my demo CD out of his backpack and put it on the table. He's like, this guy's awesome. And then the next day I got a call from Island Def Jam records. And wow. it's like, I always owe uh, Dave Barnes my, um, my gratitude for helping me get a start in music for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. He didn't even know it, but it was cool. He had my demo. <laughs> so is that kind of the turning point for you? Is that whole move right there with Island? I think it was because yeah. I mean, it's a lot of slow things. It's like moved to town and I met Ian and he's like, don't go to Belmont to record a demo. They're not going to make a good demo for you there. Come over here and record with me. And then I, if it wasn't for those really cool recordings that we had then you know that moment doesn't happen so you know it's like moving here meeting a cool person like him a very talented person and then it was easy to kind of get a buzz going because the small the town was small and the young groups were small and people talked and so it was easy to go play shows and make music and have people kind of talk about you and um so we drummed up a little buzz here and then yeah, that, that call from the record label, though, was big because I was working like a part-time job down at, on Broadway selling gifts, at, like Legends Gifts or something, and then got a call from them. And that really started the ball rolling with uh, getting interest from the major labels, and which eventually led to a management deal with network management. And they put a record out that I made. And it always seemed to be kind of just one thing like that after another, and it just built on itself a little. And to this day, it's just kind of like that, like meandering my way through and, and finding my way. The only difference is I, I worked with those folks in the music business, like 
bigger labels and management companies and agents for about seven years. And then I, I kind of parted ways and became for the most part, completely independent. I have an agent now that books shows for me. And, but I, I have my own little record label that I put music out on and, and I don't, I'm really untethered for the most part from the music business in general. I kind of just run my own thing. So it's a different hmm. world that way. Which comes and does that, does that have pros and cons for yeah, you? Is it sure. more difficult or? It's hard because uh, it's hard on a, on a macro level, but it's, it's kind of easier on a micro level. It's like, it's easier for me to move around and play the shows I want to play when I can just call my agent and say, Hey, I want to go here, here and here this year. And she makes that happen really easily. But if I like, you know, want to get in a major motion picture or on film and TV, it's harder without a kind of the big, companies pulling some strings for you and having relationships and being able to network and make things happen. So I think there's a little bit of a, I want blackballed's not the right word, but when you choose to go independent and you don't play the game with the rest of the music industry, they don't necessarily want to do you any favors if you know what right. I mean sometimes. Right. So that it, at least that's the way that it feels sometimes. So it's like, okay, fine. You want to be on your own, then you're on your own. And I guess mm-hmm. that's, um, I didn't really plan on doing that. It's just kind of, it, it's just kind of went that way. Cause I, I signed up with a lot of big companies and sort of expected one thing. And when it didn't turn out, like I thought, and enough time went by, we just kind of both agreed that maybe it was better to part ways. And then I had a series of events happen to me that just caused me to, uh, have to go in a different direction. Like I got married, started having kids. Um, I, I started to, try to live a sober life without any alcohol anymore. So it was just a lot of things happening at the same time and trying to change and be a responsible human being. And, and I needed to like, you know, get some priorities straight before I just gave my whole life up to some major record label or something that wanted to tell me when I could have kids and I couldn't. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So where in your career arc is, are you meeting your wife there in Nashville or? Tell us about that. Oh, so I met my wife in San Francisco. It's a long story, but through her cousin, Gail, who was recently divorced and had moved out to San Francisco. And I'd been friends with Gail for years because she was involved in, she was a fan of music, but also booked some of her own shows up in Massachusetts and Shelburne Falls, where she had a, worked with some local venues and had a yoga studio that she would book artists at. And so I, I knew her for years and she picked me up one day. While I was touring through San Francisco, opening for an artist from Australia named Xavier Rudd, and she picked me up at the airport, and we were walking along the beach one day, and she introduced me to her cousin Jane, who she was living with in San Francisco, and Jane is now my wife, who I met that day. <laughs> and it happened really fast. I just I liked Jane immediately and decided there was something there, and so I uh, I just went after her pretty pretty fiercely, I would say, and persistently, <laughs> and I. She didn't want anything to do with a traveling musician. She'd been in a long-term relationship with a musician before and said mm. she wasn't going to do that. And I don't know, I, I convinced her to let me come out there and take her on a few dates. And it all happened very fast. And within several months, we were married. So, <laughs> it's kind of, Wow, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so then did you uproot her from San Fran or... Well, she offered, she told me one day, I remember I was running and I think I had her on the headphones or something. And she's like, yeah, I, I think I could move to Nashville. I've, I've been at this yoga studio for eight years that she had co-owned and she was ready for a change. Her friends were 
moving on and doing other things. And so she, she offered to move here. And I had a house in Nashville that I had bought just a little place on in East Nashville when I was 27. And that impressed her and her dad, even though it was a crappy little house that impressed them that I, that I had had my own place. So her dad gave us the A-OK essentially because I was a homeowner. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was a plus for him. So yeah, we just, she moved here and we drove uh, from San Francisco in her Jeep Wrangler and our honeymoon was basically just packing up a pod full of her stuff and shipping it here. And then we, we took the journey from San Francisco to Nashville wow. and her Jeep together. And we stopped at various places along the way. And that was our kind of honeymoon. So that's awesome. Yeah. Was she a California native then or? She's from Rye, New York originally. Oh, wow. So she's a coast girl for sure. Um, yeah. East coast, West coast. She didn't understand anything about Tennessee or Ohio or anything in the middle. So that was a culture shock for her. I'm sure. So then you guys are supplanted in what year about, are we talking here? What year did you guys get married? Uh, That was 2000 and I met her in 08. We went on our first date in the winter of 09. And then we were married in the summer of 09. So yeah, she moved here early August, 2009. We got pregnant really fast, went on the road with the cranberries. I was opening up for them and we had, she was pregnant and then she had a miscarriage in Montreal, like two months in too. Oh God. The, um, so we're in Montreal. She miscarries and is devastated and we're in the middle of the tour. And mm. that's kind of like when life got really real and sort of hard. We had to address all these issues. It was like that ended the our honeymoon phase <laughs> basically i'm sure the miscarriage killed the honeymoon phase and then and then we de- both decided that i needed to stop drinking which was that just created a lot of hard hardness that we weren't expecting after mm-hmm. happy newlyweds and life got really real really fast and we had to do a lot of work on ourselves and look at ourselves very closely and be willing to change so that part is not your typical Although our our marriage was quite romantic, um, the romance part went away kind of quickly and love changed into something that was a little different, more like growing up very fast in a way that Mm -hmm. we weren't necessarily aware that we were signing up for. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And were you guys like, I don't know how to word this question correctly, but were you guys doing that work together? I mean, you're you're in one year or some one to two years of being together. Is it just you that's not necessarily like really having the more difficult time, but are you guys drinking together or is, is this Uh, just a you thing? Well, it was me that had, you know, the the issue and Mm -hmm. she was never a big drinker. So it literally wasn't even a year and it was about six months in and um, really quick. And then, I started that journey of, of sobriety and changing all that. And I start going to meetings and stuff. And um, it was just really hard. It was like, I felt like I lost all my friends. I felt mm-hmm. like I had to change all my, all my playgrounds and all my playmates. And it changed my relationship with my music team. And then I exited those relationships as well. And it felt like, Hey, I'm doing something healthy for myself supposedly, but it feels like my whole world is falling apart. Right. Yeah. And I'm, and I, I also don't even know who I am without being able to go out and drink beer with my, my buddies. It's like, mm-hmm. it was the first time in my life that I felt that I even thought of 
of suicide. Like I would never, ever have thought that I would ever be a person to think about that. And Mm -hmm. um, the thought of having to be that way forever and never get to go back to any of those ways of being again, literally was so depressing that it made me think of that for a second. But I just, I didn't go down that route and I just kind of kept putting one foot in front of the other. And for, you know, for the most part, for the, for the last decade of how I've been, it's been a journey and it's been a hard one and a rewarding one still in it so yeah yeah well thank thank goodness for that did you feel like you were an entire island yourself at that point or did you feel like you were kind of clutching on to jane as well or i mean as your world is basically turning upside down there yeah it feels like the world's turning upside down actually it felt like i was on the planet mars it just felt Mm -hmm. like i was on an entirely different planet and i guess unless people have gone through that they may not be able to understand or think that I'm exaggerating but I I really felt like I was in an alternate reality all of a sudden and I didn't know how to make sense of almost anything and it was I felt very alone I didn't it was like no one can help me through this because no one can do this for me I have to do it myself and nothing anyone can say or do can make it better and nobody else has to do this so yeah it's an incredibly lonely feeling and it got better over time for sure, but it took a while for it to stop being scary and frustrating. And then, you know, I'd, I'd go through peaks and valleys of like doing really well, kind of cruising now. And then the bottom mm-hmm. would kind of fall out for a while and, you know, some depression would come back or something and difficult to understand all that stuff. And I, as I've spent more time um, in AA going through, all that I, I eventually decided to start working with uh, a therapist, like just get some outside help. And that's, that's really helped me. Cause I think I questioned whether some of the mind control that was going on and an effort to get me and keep me sober was ultimately healthy for like the rest of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started to feel like I was like losing a sense of self and just become a little bit of like an a robot or something. Yeah, and, um, that I that I was being invited to let others do my thinking for me instead of being able to think for myself, and also I felt like I had to turn my heart and my emotions off, which I, I thought used to be kind of my best quality. But in order to protect myself and stay sober, I felt like I had to kind of turn the faucet off, and that was really scary because I'm like, man, my heart is who I am. How do mm-hmm. I? What what good is it if I'm sober if I don't? if all my good qualities are gone too, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It was just tough to figure that out, but I stuck with it for a very, very long time without trying to take any of that stuff back. And I gave it a real chance to work. And then as I got further down the line, I started to be comfortable enough to ask some questions and start to maybe think for myself more and, and also dare to, to feel some more without worrying that I was going to blow my whole life up. <laughs> Yeah. Which, which is huge, especially thinking about that. This is earlier than now where I think we're finally starting to get into that place where on a larger level, it's the stigmas at least going away a little bit of at least asking for help and at least talking to other people. Whereas potentially when you were doing that, that was still like that kind of what you're going to a therapist. Wow. You must be really messed up. Yeah, exactly. I was talking with my wife today about that with like ACA, which I don't know if you're familiar, but 
it's adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional hmm. families. And some people go to that. That's becoming a popular thing. And I was exploring that idea with her, but I'm like, but I'm not from an alcoholic home. And can you really call my family dysfunctional? I think they're pretty, pretty functional compared to like mm -hmm. the rest of the world. And so, yeah, you have this conversation of like, how messed up is messed up? And where's the barometer compared to what? What are you talking right. about? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just, it's all their interesting ideas, but we're living in, in an interesting time. And um, the 12 step programs are controversial and debatable. <laughs> and I think they right. help a lot of people. And there, I think there's also some software updating that may need to happen within there that, mm -hmm. that I don't know anybody's really willing to talk about because they're afraid that if they update the software, it won't work anymore. And yeah. um, that's a tricky one. So they need to make like, well, AAA is already taken by the <laughs> Automobile Association, yeah. but like quadruple the alternative something alcoholics anonymous yeah. where it's well there are people doing like recovery 2.0 or there's some guy that my wife knows that does that and it, it always it's interesting i think the people are recognizing that there's some things about it that could either be taken further or maybe there's some outdated concepts that maybe yeah overall it's been a group that has been really helpful for me and I'm glad they were there when I needed a support system. And for that, I'm, I'm really grateful and um, can't really say enough good things about, about that. So, yeah, I'm sure. So thinking of during that time and you talking about feeling like you're having to turn off your heart and everything, which is where your creativity is coming from. What, what is going on with your songwriting and your career and that battle and everything during that i guess i just wrote about that you know i i got the idea that i could write about not being able to write really mm -hmm. I, one of my songs about getting sober was started off by saying like i don't really feel like talking right now there's got to be another way around somehow and, there, and then it said i don't really feel like singing right now because i don't really feel like bringing you down and then the chorus was you can never get around what you got to go through and it was about just realizing that the only way out of this predicament was through and i had to just keep going i don't really feel like talking right now there's gotta be another way around somehow I don't really feel like saying nothing It's hard to see you in the shape I'm in My love is weak and I've lost my will My thoughts are racing and I'm standing still Our hearts are one And I know it's true You can never get around what you gotta go through So it, it gave way to songs like that that were talking about the experience of just pushing through and not giving up and realizing that this too shall pass and that the struggle is only temporary and that um, you'll find yourself in a different position sooner than you think because change is inevitable and just keep going. And I wrote songs like that and just dealt with what was in front of me. And my, you know, my subject matter changed getting sober and having kids and having a family. My, I didn't really see a point really in writing 
breakup songs that I was writing in my twenties. All the oh, right, right. So I just embraced whatever life was throwing at me, and I continue to do that. That's sort of how I've how I've processed life is through my music, and it's kept things fresh. I think because if I if I'm willing to grow as a human being, then my music just sort of naturally changes along with me. Mm-hmm. That's been my my story thus far. How old are your two little girls now? They're seven and five. Okay. Yeah. So have you found that when you guys started bringing them into, into being in the world, was that also like really changing your style or changing things that you were doing or I would say writing wise? Writing wise? Um, I don't know. I think it all kind of coincided with, with the sobriety and mm-hmm. I know that it changed everything. I, it changed one of my songs. The whole meaning changed because one of my most popular songs, the chorus is um, you'll always be, you'll always be, you'll always be my girl. And it, it I thought it was a, you know, more, more romantic song. And then the first mm-hmm. time I looked at my daughter, I said, Oh, this song is about you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really interesting. You know, how the meanings from already previously existing songs can change once your perspective shifts. Yeah we talked at the beginning a lot about you, your dad, your, both of your grandparents, obviously having a big influence on you. Do you think that with being now outmanned, well, outwomaned three to one, um, has that kind of changed your personality perspective, a lot of that stuff or? Yeah, I think it's softened my edges for sure. And Mm -hmm. I, I think in my mid twenties, I was much more of a raging ball of testosterone and just like rocking my way through. <laughs> I Rocky as a verb, Rocky the fighter, <laughs> being like Rocky through the universe, and just thinking that I could like linebacker my way through life. And I, I relied on my <laughs> strength to sort of like get things done. And now I have had to. I don't know if it's all the estrogen around me or what, but I'm just like really calmed down and, and like have to be softer. And if I had boys, like I watched my, one of my best friends, Brian, and he just manhandles his boys and just like mm-hmm. throws them around and he's winging them. And, and when you have daughters, I guess it's just naturally a little bit different. Um, yeah. So it's a different relationship. And I've, but I was comfortable with that because I admired my grandfather, George Griffin so much and he had four daughters. So I kind of mm. feel like it's a, comfortable in that role i suppose Mm -hmm. which i think i think is good like creating that balance of your life like that change in your life in san francisco even if you were to really like market there becomes kind of that fulcrum that it seems like everything else has started to kind of go in this and i say this after having talked to you for an hour (laughs) so i know everything now griffin (laughs) but that you are on, you know, this secondary plane of your life now and being able to have all those past experiences, at least to look back at and grow off of, but use in a much different way now with your, I don't know, second, second path. Yeah, I think that's true for sure. So tell me about the movie because I'm, I saw the trailer and I'm fascinated and told your management company that like, I was so excited to talk with you after I saw that it was even just from that trailer. I was like, I cannot wait to see this, man. This speaks to me. That means so much to me that you would say that, especially not even really knowing much about me before 
talking and I I feel the same way when I watch it. It's a film that I ended up being a big part of making, I suppose, because I, I ended up with a co co-executive producer credit on the film and, and was approached by this filmmaker, Shane Drake, to make it and he does music videos for a living and is very very successful in his career. He's one of long, long lists of, of awards over the years for what he does, mm-hmm. but he's never made a feature film before. And I met him serendipitously through my buddy from high school one day in LA. And we stayed in touch and I sent him songs from my new record. And he approached me with this idea of doing a documentary instead of a music video, which is what we'd initially been talking about. And mm-hmm. it just hit me like a like a ton of bricks. I, I think I actually just like laid down on the floor and took a deep breath and kind of got some tears in my eyes because I felt like, wow, somebody somebody wants to t- me to tell my story to them and thinks it's worth telling. And I am so ready to tell it because I feel like I have so, so much um, that I'm dealing with. And we've touched on that a little bit already, just with in regards to the music business and trying to figure out how to navigate it and deal with this this mythology that I'm trying to live out with my life and feeling like many days I'm just failing miserably at it and then keeping on going because I've had all these signposts of like, hey, you're on the right track and we're encouraging you to keep going and this person's saying that you're really good, but why am I not farther down the, the journey than I am? Mm-hmm. And just all these all these themes to talk about and I felt really ready to explore with this person that I knew really got me number one, because we were on some similar life journeys together, but also he had been somebody that had had a high level of success at one time and then had to grapple with some things happening that, that put his career on hold a little bit. And I felt very, very seen with this by this person and it created a trust and a bond between us to where I don't think I could have made anywhere close to this film with any other human being except for Mm -hmm. him. That's great. Yeah, we, we joked about it one day. So I said, well, that sounds great, Shane. How much does it cost to make a movie like a two screen budget? And he told me and it was a high number. But then I was like, well, I still would like to do it. Would you want to like invest in it together or just, you know, split the cost or whatever? He goes, oh, no, first rule of filmmaking, don't spend your own money. So I was like, well, so you think we need to get an investor or something? He's like, yeah, we, we, need, to, we need to knock on some doors. I said, I think I might have a guy in mind. So I picked up the phone and I called my friend in St. Louis who had just sold his, his business and he's a big music fan. And I, I gave him the five minute pitch and he's like, okay, I'm in cool. And so, so within like 24 hours, we had an investor for the full film budget. And then two weeks later, Shane was on the road with me and we're shooting. And the guy who put up the money to do the film was tour managing us and driving us around for the first leg of the tour. So awesome. it was just crazy crazy how quickly it came together but yeah i think it's a beautiful film i can't wait for people to see it and how is that happening are did you guys do like the the whole festival stuff are you doing a limited release how is that happening uh, there's a couple of different routes as, as we understand that you can take it we've we've watched a, another friend make a film recently and he's like doing the full-on film festival like three-year tour where he's entered every film festival and they're winning a bunch of bunch of awards where they're winning a ton of film festivals for a movie called the push it's about my buddy grant Corman, who was an extreme sports guy who was paralyzed from the waist down oh wow and um so the the film is about him traversing antarctica basically um with 
sitting on a, on a ski and propelling himself across Antarctica. So it's, wow. it's a crazy, crazy movie. It's won all these awards, but he's really gone the film festival route and he gave what we're trying to do. Although we did enter the Toronto film festival and um, we may do a handful of others. We're basically trying to get some folks like Netflix to see it and see if they would like to pick it up. Well, I will be keeping my eyes out cause I can't wait to see oh, it. Thank you. I'm I, so happy. I, roped my wife in who loves music documentaries and she's she's not as thrilled as i am (laughs) but that's only because she hasn't talked to you yet (laughs) that's great so once she hears this she'll know that's awesome and you're so we're kind of in a time bubble because i won't be releasing this until after but your new album is coming out on friday of this week yes it is, yeah. It's coming out um, in less than two days. So um, I did some stupid Instagram post today with my like, <laughs> I bent over my kitchen counter going, I'm looking for the perfect angle for Instagram and this isn't it. My record's coming out tomorrow. And it's just like the amount of ridiculous stuff I will do to try to get people to stop and pay attention for a second. Because if I just say, new record coming out tomorrow it tends to look like an advertisement and no one they just click right by it so i have to just do foolish things to try to catch people's attention Mm -hmm. i've created alter egos like my italian vincenzo who just does ridiculous things he's sort of like a borat type character awesome (laughs) so he promotes for me sometimes and so i did that today and i'm just i'm kind of disgusted by the links that i'll sometimes (laughs) on instagram to get people to Pay attention. That's good, though. You're having fun with it. I am. I guess it pulls me out of some darker moments once in a while where I go, okay, I got to do an Instagram post. I can't be this depresso. I need to like get a sense of humor back somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's cool that you, I mean, I don't know, like that you do the stuff on your own. That is, I think, one of the bonuses of your untethered life from corporate music world is that people are getting more real you which fits into your whole who who you are musically and personally anyways yeah the social media thing's hard to navigate and i went off about it today in another interview just basically saying <laughs> i okay let's just be real i hate social media i wish it would go mm-hmm. away forever i don't think i think it's a sick world where people compare each other and affects people's self-esteem in a completely negative way <laughs> and i wouldn't miss it at all i'd rather be swimming in rivers and looking at sunsets but it's just it is what it it's is. a necessary evil, yeah, right? It kind of is. You just got to make the best of it. I think it's it's funny too because I remember not that long ago this year, Twitter there was a rumor. I can't even remember if they were the ones that perpetuated it, but there was a big rumor going around of them just removing the number of your likes and your retweets, and this big like, what would what would you all do? What yeah. would we do if we couldn't see the number and nobody could see how many people were liking or retweeting your stuff? Like, That's what just, would that? I don't know. It's cause? crazy. So this album that is coming out, what is, what is the title of it? It's right. It's called Rising Star, just like the movie. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Can you tell us like what kind of led into this album? What went into it? What the if there is an overall kind of difference or something that went into it a little bit different than your most recent one? Yeah, that's a great question. One cool thing was that I I reconnected with uh, my buddies that I made my first record with 
called Lost and Found back in 2004 when I first moved to town. So I got back mm. together with Ian Bitchuk, who I mentioned earlier, and Paul Moak, who produced the record. They were guys that were in my original band. And it was a really cool reunion to go back and make a record with... I hadn't worked with both of them at the same time since then. I'd worked on and off with them individually, but never together. So it was kind of a little bit of a getting the band back together feeling. And mm -hmm. I also... Um, I wrote a couple songs with a newer friend that I, I've met over the last few years. His name's Brian Elmquist, and he plays in a band called The Lone Bellow. And I wrote a couple tunes with him, and I wrote one with Joy Williams, who used to be in the Civil Wars. Oh, yeah. Um, so we, she sang a duet with me on the record called Change. Used to be so short Used to hold on tight I did several co-writes and there were two other songs I wrote with friends. Well, Rising Star was written with my friend Titer from the Faroe Islands and then I wrote a song with Jeff Trott who um, has written a lot for Cheryl Crow. So I collaborated with friends pretty heavily on this album partially because I felt like it would kickstart some creativity and get me to some newer directions and also I've just kind of run out of space and time to write when you're touring and traveling and being a full-time dad and, and husband all the time. So it helped me get get some more songs under my belt more quickly and had a, a lot more fun in the process of doing it. That sounds cool. I'm sure there's a lot of different perspectives within the songs as well on the album then with so many different collaborations happening. Yeah, I think so. It's just fun to mix it up and get some other folks' energy in there, whereas you know previously I'm just doing it all myself. I felt like it was healthy to branch out and work with some other people in town and that'd been a goal of mine for a couple of years anyway i just felt like my lifestyle is very isolating because i go off by myself um, and play these shows mostly solo acoustic and then i come home and for years i'm just sitting in these meetings where i'm kind of like isolated from the musical community and then i'm home with my family and i'm like man i'm just not mixing it up enough you know like i need to get out there and and be with around some more folks so it was I felt like I accomplished that goal a little bit by working with some other great artists on my on my record. Cool. Yeah. And what is what is music like in your house with your family, like with with you, with your kids, with your wife? Like, is it kind of all over the place? I mean, it, especially with kids, it can be so funky. I know that you know my ten year old, my wife and I feel like we've failed her musically because of some of the things that she's into, unfortunately, <laughs> as a young girl. Oh, um, but our son, we're doing a little bit better with. 
that's cool. Um, <laughs> well, my it's funny because my kids, um, I did a song, I wrote several songs with Brazen Cyrus uh, last year, who is, is Billy Ray Cyrus's son. Oh, yeah. And so we, we I got invited to do some songs with him and it was really fun. He's a great singer and gr- a great writer, but he's just kind of starting out and working on his first album, but he's already like played on the Fallon show and stuff. And hmm. um, so that, that's sort of a connection with my daughters like the Billy Ray Cyrus and Nas song so much now that's out uh-huh. the old town road. And so they sing that all the time and they're, they're really funny about it. Cause they're like, daddy, we, we, you're still our favorite, but we we really like this song, and so that's it's like our second favorite, which I guess is their way of kindly telling me that it's their favorite song. But yeah, yeah, their musical taste is pretty good for the most part. Like Clara, who is so funny, she's a five year old, and she's mm-hmm. just a she's a big tomboy, and like she one of her favorite songs is an Elliot Smith song, and it's like this really huh? really depressing song. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's you, random. Why do you like Elliot? This Elliot Smith song is just so funny. She's like sitting in the back seat with her ball cap on and just like singing Elliot Smith, and <laughs> but she she likes the you know Imagine Dragon songs, and both kids yeah. have pretty good musical taste, and they actually genuinely like their dad's music too, which is kind of cool. So that's great. Yeah. That would suck if you had to go like somewhere else to work on your music. It really would. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're the fact that they're genuinely into what I do and, and they don't just tell me like, dad, we don't like your songs. Like, stuff mm-hmm. like that. it's pretty cool. Yeah. And your wife, is she kind of in the same vein with you and musical taste or, I mean, I'm sure she Loves your stuff the best. Yeah. My wife knew of my music before she met me, which is kind of weird, I guess. But she, mm-hmm. the thing about it is that she, I didn't meet her like as a fan of any kind. I, and I didn't really know that she knew my music when I, when I met her. Uh-huh. She saw me play in 2004 and I never met her this night. So I was playing in San Francisco and I was opening for Josh Ritter and Sarah Harmer at the Independent. And I walked out on stage and she was there with her boyfriend at the time wow and i sang like my first song or my first note and this guy just collapses in the middle <gasps> he falls over like a tree and he i don't we still don't really know what happened but she had to leave the concert put him in a cab and go and so i never met her that night but she oh my god stage and she knew my music like she knew my first record right and so she was there to kind of see me too and, and josh ritter and Sarah Harmer and never met her. And then I didn't meet her again till like four years later. And wow. she didn't, she didn't tell me that story till sometime later, but it was just kind of funny that she had, she had known my music and we don't talk about that at, at, that much. Like we kind of gloss over it, but she was, I guess sort of, I mean, I wouldn't say a fan, but she knew of me and liked yeah. my music apparently. And that's cool. He has to deal with all my insecurities all the time. And I must be so annoying because I, (laughs) it's like I work really hard at making myself as least attractive to her as I can be by just showing all my, (laughs) all my insecurities about my, uh, my, my status in the music world. But it's hard not to feel that way when like your best friends are winning Grammys and you're sitting on the couch watching them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But again, just remember those 12. That's all you got to do. Which are more than 12. I'm absolutely certain of that. I mean, seriously, like not as a um, 
blowing smoke up your ass kind of thing. But when I connected with your management group and yeah. immediately like went to check out your music and everything, I, I am a big fan. I Aww. have a bad habit of unfortunately of like not paying enough attention to lyrics uh-huh. sometimes because I just, a lot of times I'm doing stuff, but like even last night I was doing the dishes and told my echo to put on Griffin house and was listening. And I was just like thinking as I was listening to it, like how, and, and I'm a fan of this kind of music, but I mean, you, you're like a Swiss army knife, all purpose music to me because I can see myself driving on a road trip and enjoying listening to your music. I, am doing the dishes and enjoying listening to your music. I can see myself doing many different things and whether I'm not really thinking of the lyrics or I am honing in on them like I was last night, like it's it's great. I I'm really cool. I'm a very big fan, so that's so awesome to hear that. It means a lot to me. It's funny you talking about like the twelve because sometimes like I'll have people come up to me at my shows and be like I'm a stalker and I'm like, that's okay. You're keeping me going. I'm like, yeah. I invite as many stalkers as possible. <laughs> so the 12, the 12 stalkers are like, yeah, you got to take care of them, man. They're like your, yeah. like your best people. And it's funny how we've, we've been conditioned as a society to be like, if you're a rock star, you have to hide and pretend like you don't want to talk to anybody mm-hmm. and you can never be seen. And you always have to go through the secret passageway to get to stage. And my world could not be any different than that. It's like the further I keep going, the more I just go and talk to people who come to my show and be like, you're my best friend for being here. Like you are so awesome that you, that you like my music and you're, you're here to hang out. And I've just, the more I've done it, the more those old cliches and ways of doing things have fallen away like scales from the eyes. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. more of a like, a, a symbiotic relationship with these people that I appreciate so much that come out and just want to hear these songs for some miraculous reason that I've, that I've written. And it's, it's pretty cool. That's cool. That's, I think that's very, uh, that should be very normal and very human because like you are connecting with those people in, in even a tighter way with that. And I mean, that's, that should be like normal human life, whether you're a musician or not, like speaking to a large group of people in a room, mm-hmm. um, that you are kind of making this more real connection with them. And that makes it just like you said, this symbiotic transmission between both parties. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are, that are speaking about that now what like amanda palmer is a person that that really seems to understand that um i don't know if you know about her but then uh, this other younger artist billy eilish talks about that a lot how she just wants mm-hmm. to use the word fan because it's so silly and I, I agree with her it's so cool that she recognizes that and so early on and she she seems like such a great positive powerful presence my my wife is always googling her and, and watching her and uh. she's fascinated by her <laughs> and, um, I uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 such an interesting concept how this idea of why you get into something ends up being something terribly different. Because I I watched you know Rattle and Hum and you too and thinking like I need to be that and what I 
that's what started me along my journey. But my my hero's journey from <laughs> is it, I'm quoting Joseph Campbell, but I'm just I understand <laughs> this, this okay. mythology that I'm trying to to live out as something um, very unique. Now it's turned into you know like I've meandered down my own path, and it's not where I started. It's 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 something different, and that's scary because you feel like oh my gosh, what do you do when there are no more archetypes to follow and you have to blaze your own trail and I'm not imitating it all anymore. I'm just out here by myself right? to make something unique and special. Well, which is cool because you have the new people who are with you and following you on that journey and your kids that you are, you know, bringing, like you said earlier, that different variance of what you learned of the better parts of your grandparents, your father and pulling that in and not only like transfusing that through you and the things that you do and the way you live your life, et cetera, but also like altering it a little bit because you are dealing with your daughters, which are going to pull it in, in a completely different way. So that's the good part of life. It is absolutely is. This has been the coolest interview doing this with you today. It's, I, I feel like we've gotten pretty pretty deep in terms of going underneath the surface of things yeah. that normally happen in an interview. And I really appreciate you taking the time to just create a, a space for us to talk about something real. Yeah, man. Of course. I completely appreciate your time, especially, like I said, during a very busy and important week for you. I'm excited for for Friday. Oh, thank you. Hopefully I can figure out a way to properly advertise it. I'm sure. And just let your inner, um, what is your Italian? (laughs) Oh, Vincenzo. Yeah, just let Vincenzo take over. I think I am going to do that. I'll let Vincenzo (laughs) advertise for me tomorrow. I might even do a dueling video somehow with Vincenzo if I can get enough tech savvy to do that. But um, (laughs) the one thing is that people seem to be, with the movie, I, I have a a deep hope for the movie because I think that when people see that you're putting out a new movie, they seem about 10 times more excited than new record because mm-hmm. a new record is like, wow, everybody's putting out a new record, man. But if right. you've got a movie, they're like, whoa, a movie? Okay, we're paying attention now. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm definitely on board for both. So I'm excited for this year, hopeful for that movie to pick up some more steam and everything and get out there so we can see it and uh, it's a whole nother uh, whole nother side of you so i'm excited for that well thank you i appreciate your time today it's been, this has been great yeah thank you so people can check out you have a website yeah it's griffinhousemusic.com my instagram is griffin wade house like wade in the water w-a-d-e wade boggs third baseman for red sox that's it and my Twitter is Griffin House and my Facebook is Griffin House. So everybody, make sure you look out for that. On, I will tell you, go back now if you haven't already uh, because the new album, Rising Star, will be out by the time this comes out. So check it out yeah. everywhere you can buy music. And if you don't want to buy it, I, we guess it's okay for you to stream this and then keep your eye out for where Griffin will be playing uh after his summer is over okay thanks a lot griffin thank you hey what was your father's first name by the way jack 
Well, no, I'm sorry. His first name really was John, but he he basically was Jack. Okay, so Poppy's name's Jack too. I don't know. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Good way to yeah. good way to wrap this up, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's great, man. All right, cool. Well, thank you again so much, Griffin. Thank you for having me. This has been great. All right, you guys, there you have it. The full conversation with myself and Griffin House. I hope you enjoyed that. He's just a great guy, a great fellow whose well runs very deep. And I love talking to people who are not afraid to share their experiences, who have had these kinds of experiences and grown from them and are okay with that. And especially like we said during our conversation the portion where we were talking about how important it is to communicate and talk and how the breakdown of that stigma that's currently still underway, I think, in our society is so huge. And I will use this moment to encourage any of you out there, if you need to talk to somebody, talk to somebody. Like that hurdle, I'm sad that that exists in society and culture, in any, in families, in anything Like if you have something that you need to talk about with someone, find the right person. That's an important piece of it. Find the right person and talk. Just talk through those things. It can be even if you are telling the person that you are talking to, if you are finding the right person to do this, hey, I don't need you to solve this problem for me. I'm not expecting you to. I just need to talk. I just need to talk through it. And a lot of times, just that makes us feel so much better. I am not a paid or licensed anything, but I've been through my shit and I have been through a lot of it. And I have had many lifetimes in my life and talking with more people who have been through experiences like that as well is just such a huge reminder of not only the work that we have to do on ourselves or for ourselves and by ourselves, but how sometimes just having that person to listen can be so tremendously helpful. So shout out to all the freaking listeners out there too, because you guys who truly are listening and are safe for all of us that need to talk to you sometimes, thank you. You're doing a tremendous service and a being extremely fantastic humans and friends to people that you are listening to and not running and telling others about it and not absolutely forcing a fix on them, etc. So shout out to all the listeners. So, okay. And shout out to all the listeners of the podcast. I told you all the ways to get to Griffin House. Make sure you do that. Check him out. Find the Rising Star album. Listen to it. Listen to the ones before that. Put him on your Spotify, play it and listen to it. You don't have to buy his stuff like I told you. It would be cool if you did, but you don't have to, but you should. So to get to Daddy Unscripted on everything, big huge shocker here. We are on social media as Daddy Unscripted on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. The email, if you want to comment on this podcast episode specifically or send me other guest ideas or tell me like you really need to explore more personas like Griffin does, send me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. And 
You absolutely should check out the post that goes with this episode and goes with all of the other ones. Go to daddyunscripted.com. There's other information, photos, all that kind of good stuff that goes along with every episode. And sometimes even some of my posts that don't become episodes will go up there. So daddyunscripted.com for that. Again, I will thank Humphreys McGee for letting me have their music on this episode in the intro and the outro. I really appreciate it. Make sure you guys check out umfreeze.com to see more about them. Huge thanks in that vein to Griffin and his people for allowing me to play his music in this episode. I love doing that. I love having music in the episodes. So thank you guys. And I will also remind you, check out osirispod.com to check out the other episodes like the one that we played the little snippet of earlier and also remind you that Osiris is in a partnership with Jambase at www.jambase.com. And they are always empowering people to go see live music, which who would argue with that? So check out Jambase for that stuff as well. My next episode should be out in a couple to a few weeks. So keep an eye out for that. You guys, thank you. Thank you for listening. Everybody, tell a friend about the podcast. Send them over to this episode. Send them over to Griffin's stuff. Big group hug. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. And I greeted you in Hawaiian, a very foreign language. And I am now going to say goodbye to you in the language of Hawaiian by saying aloha. I think it might be the only language that you can do that. I will have to research that. But I think it's maybe the only language where hello and goodbye is the same. But aloha, everybody. Have a great day, have a great week, and uh, keep your eye out for the next episode. Thank you. <laughs>